Revelation chapter 9 is a continuation of the sequence of seven angels that was introduced in Revelation chapter 8. The first four of those angels in chapter 8 sounded their trumpets, and in Revelation chapter 9, we will be introduced to the fifth angel in verse 1, and the sixth angel in verse 13. Uh, The seventh of these angels, as I've mentioned earlier, will be shown in the middle of Revelation chapter 11. In addition to this sequence of these seven angels, another sequence begins, which I alluded to at the end of Revelation chapter 8 with the Bruce R. McConkie quote. And this sequence is of three specific woes, W-O-E, and the end of Revelation chapter 8 says, woe, woe, woe. Now, verse 12 of Revelation chapter 9 tells us, quote, that one woe is past, and behold, there come two woes more hereafter. So that first woe that is being referenced in verse 12 is what is described in verses 1 through 11, and, and what is unleashed or, or signaled by the sounding of the angel's of the fifth angel's trumpet. Now, these woes have very specific terrors that will be described. And so the first woe, again, extends from verses 1 through 11. The second woe extends from verse 13 all the way to the end of Revelation chapter 9 through Revelation chapter 10 and the first part, I think it's verses 1 through 14, uh, of Revelation chapter 11. And so that is the second woe. The third woe, as Elder McConkie explained in the quote that I read uh, connected with the previous chapter, is, quote, the destruction of the remainder of the wicked when the vineyard is burned by divine power and the earth changes from its telestial to its terrestrial state. That's out of his doctrinal New Testament commentary. There are uh, specific terrors or horrors that are part of these woes. And and we will read about them in detail. And uh, we'll do it by progressing kind of image by image through this chapter to help us understand this. At At a first reading or at a superficial reading, these terrors, as I'm calling them, such as locusts or a smoke out of a pit, Uh, may not strike us as something so horrific until we really look at what this imagery means. And then we start to get a better sense for what's happening here. Again, as these angels are sounding their trumpet at the opening of the seventh seal. We'll talk at the end of this chapter briefly about where this opening of the seventh seal uh, and and the terrors that we read about uh, in this chapter, how they relate to the millennium. And so we'll talk about that a little bit at the end. Now, for now, let's go back then to verse 1 and begin to progress through this. Verse 1, I think I'll read the first... I think I'll read just the first verse. And the fifth angel sounded, and I saw a star fall from heaven unto the earth. 
and to him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Okay, so let's first focus on this star for a moment. A star is a vessel of light. It's something that has its own intrinsic brilliance. Uh, it's a light bearer in that sense. The star that's being referenced here is a star that fell. And so that tells us who that star is. The reference to a star and wormwood in the previous chapter give us the idea that that this star became poisoned, which is a theme that we see later in this chapter as well when we talk about the, the sting of the scorpion. Now, thinking more broadly about poison, it's something that really permeates Scripture. Uh, we read about a serpent at the very beginning of the Old Testament, and this serpent has not only the ability to beguile, but also to poison someone that it bites. So this concept of poison is something that, that we encounter over and over through scriptures. It's kind of always there uh, as we're thinking about the adversary and his capacity to deceive and to ruin. It, it looks here like we're learning that the adversary himself was a star of bright, pre-mortal light who had this his own degree of brilliance, but that he became poisoned. So he was the original victim, we might say, of this poison. And as such, he fell from heaven. Isaiah had something to say about this. In Isaiah chapter 14, verses 12 through 17, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of God. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Yet, and this brings us into our next theme in this verse, thou shalt be brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit. They that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee, and consider thee, saying, Is this the man that made the earth to tremble? that did shake kingdoms, that made the world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened not the house of his prisoners? We learn a great deal about the character of Lucifer in that passage from Isaiah then. And so we know without a doubt that in verse 1, this star that fell from heaven unto the earth is the devil himself, is Lucifer himself. Now, we, we read something in the latter half of this verse that can be hard to understand. It says, To him was given the key of the bottomless pit. Well, first we'll talk about the key and then the bottomless pit. Now, the Joseph Smith translation suggests that this, uh, this hymn was an angel and that uh, Satan was given this key in that manner. The important thing to take from that and from several other uh, intimations that we find in this chapter uh, it, uh, are that the Lord himself is in control and that he is allowing uh, Satan to, 
to affect these things, but only to a limited degree. And that's um, something that we'll talk about a little bit later in the chapter. There's something important happening here as the narrative goes on that we should notice too. And that is that the previous four angels of these seven that are sounding their trumpet, the directing force seemed to be God himself. When we read about these angels in chapter 9, the, the focus and the directing force seems to be Satan himself. That can be slightly confusing for us as readers. Let me read a paragraph out of uh, Richard Draper's book, Opening the Seven Seals, that helps us to understand this a little bit more. He says, But note, Satan does not own the key. And we're talking again about the key to the pit here in this verse. Satan does not own the key. He receives it. Once again, John reveals that someone acts behind the scenes, controlling and directing even the machinations of the evil one. Ironically, this potent one, for all his flaunted authority, cannot free the might of hell until God gives him the key. In this way, John shows that perdition's dominion starts and ends where the Lord dictates. Satan's limits are firm. He cannot go beyond them. But in the last days, because of the wickedness of men, the devil will have great power. And then here's a quote from Doctrine and Covenants, section 1, verse 35. For I, God, am no respecter of persons, and will that all men shall know that the day speedily cometh. The hour is not yet, but is nigh at hand, when peace shall be taken from the earth, and the devil shall have power over his own dominion. Okay, and that's the end of that quote by Brother Draper. And he also references this uh, this this episode in the book of Job, where the Lord allows Lucifer to have sway over Job's life. And so there's kind of an example of it there. But I think that's an important thing to set up before we begin to talk about this this season in which Satan himself unleashes his power at the beginning of the seventh seal. Now what flows from this and of this bottomless pit, which we'll now discuss, are, are horrors that are almost unimaginable. And so this verse tells us, verse 1, that he was given the key of the bottomless pit. Bottomless pit. Now just to restate, the trumpets up to this point were to signal a destructive power that came from heaven. But now, with the fifth angel, this destructive power is coming from hell. It's not coming from above, but it's coming from beneath, and that's coming from a pit, a bottomless pit. There are allusions to such a pit in other spots in the Old Testament. Here are a couple. Amos chapter 9 verse 3 says, And though they hide themselves in the top of Carmel, I will search and take them out thence. And though they be hid from my sight in the bottom of the sea, thence will I command the serpent, and he shall bite them. So again, that passage from Amos is an allusion to something like a pit where, where the serpent hides uh, the devil himself. Now Job, in chapter 41, there's an extended passage that talks 
about God's power over the Leviathan, a great monster that lives in a pit and, and has pride in the strength of his scales. It says in verse 26 that the sword of him that layeth at him cannot hold the spear, the dart, nor the habergeon. He esteemeth iron as straw and brass as rotten wood. So again, we're talking about the strength of the scales of this beast. The arrow cannot make him flee. Sling stones are turned with him into stubble. Darts are counted as stubble. He laugheth at the shaking of a spear. Sharp stones are under him. He spreadeth sharp pointed things upon the mire. He maketh the deep to boil like a pot. He maketh the sea like a pot of ointment. Now that's that's reference again to this deep and bottomless pit that is likened to a, a sea or a cauldron that's boiling. In verse 32, he maketh a path to shine after him. One would think the deep to be hoary. And hoary is a coloration that indicates old age. So there is that image of a bottomless pit and a star that has fallen from heaven and now has domain over this pit, like this Leviathan that's described in Job. Now, we're going to be introduced to the next image here in verse 2. And let me just reemphasize before moving on that we're, we're also learning from this because of the way that God is, is in control here, that, that he, uh, only, he allows Satan to have power, but only to an extent. Uh, another example of this would be what we know about the end of the millennium, where God will bind Satan and his followers. Doctrine and Covenants section 43, verse 31 says, For Satan shall be bound. When he is loosed again, he shall reign, only reign, for a little season, and then cometh the end of the earth. Telling us just once again before we move on, who's in control. All right, so verse 2, And he opened the bottomless pit. And here's our next image. And there arose a smoke out of the pit, as the smoke of a great furnace, And then here's the consequence of this smoke. And the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. There's a sense of foreboding here as we read this and imagine this smoke rising out of Satan's domain. Uh, But there's also an element of strategy to this. It's somewhat similar to what we read in Lehi's vision where Lehi describes in 1 Nephi chapter 8, verse 23, quote, a mist of darkness, yea, even an exceedingly great mist of darkness, insomuch that they who had commenced in the path did lose their way, that they were wandered off and were lost. Now, being destroyed sounds more foreboding than simply wandering off and becoming lost. But this is the strategy behind Satan's machinations. It is that he causes this wandering and he tempts us and we end up destroying ourselves on our own volition volition because of the way that we wander off and become lost. And so this, this thing that's billowing out of the pit, this smoke, it is strategic and we most certainly 
should respect the destructive capacity of such a smoke or such a mist of darkness. More broadly, then, we can interpret this mist to to be an allusion to Satan's false philosophies, and that's something to really think about, and his temptations and his deceptions where we are made to think that he's something that he's not, and and, and, and his overall attempts then to destroy the righteous are embodied in this type of strategy. Section 93 says something interesting along these lines. Verse 39 says, And that wicked one cometh and taketh away light and truth through disobedience from the children of men and because of the tradition of their fathers. He's not taking it by force exactly. He is lulling them. He is tempting them. This smoke, then, that comes out of the pit is, is representative of that type of, 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 um, that type of darkness. And the, and the second part of the verse, then, says that it was effective enough that, quote, the sun and the air were darkened by reason of the smoke of the pit. So that's his first move before he unleashes the next image that we'll encounter. It's to create darkness, confusion, discord, doubt, we could say. Notice this verse in 3 Nephi chapter 1. After the new star appeared, uh, signaling the birth of the Savior, here is the contravening thing that also happened in exact opposition to the light of a star that appeared in the heavens, we see that in verse 22, it came to pass that from this time forth there began to be lyings sent forth among the people by Satan to harden their hearts to the intent that they might not believe in those signs and wonders which they had seen. But notwithstanding these lyings and deceivings, the more part of the people did believe and were converted unto the Lord." We'll see that similarity also as we go through the chapter where there is a remnant that is saved and is not um, uh, caught up in his deceptions. Here's another example in the Book of Mormon right around the same era. This is the end of the Book of Helaman, and it's Satan's influence is described this way. And many more things did the people imagine up in their hearts which were foolish and vain, and they were much disturbed for Satan did stir them up to do iniquity continually. Yea, he did go about spreading rumors and contentions upon the face of the land, that he might harden the hearts of the people against that which was good and against that which should come. So, think again of the poison, the poison that we read about at the end of of chapter 8, and we're about to talk about poison again. But that's the effect then that it had upon this people. So much so that the Book of Mormon provides us with some of their rhetoric. Uh, Listen to what they say then in verses 15 through 17. Nevertheless, the people began to harden their hearts, all save it were the most believing part of them, both of the Nephites and also of the Lamanites, and began to depend upon their own strength and upon their own wisdom, saying, here's the rhetoric, some things they may have guessed right, among so many, we're talking about Samuel's signs here, but behold, we know that all these great and marvelous works cannot come to pass of which has been spoken. And they began to reason, there's an interesting word, and to contend, another, 
among themselves, saying, that it is not reasonable that such a being as a Christ shall come. If so, and he be the Son of God, the Father of heaven and of earth, as it has been spoken, why will he not show himself unto us, as well as unto them who shall be at Jerusalem? So there's some rhetoric, there's some confusion and discord and rumors. Now with that stage set, we read in verse 3 about something specific that comes out of this smoke. Verse 3 reads like this, And there came out of the smoke locusts upon the earth, and unto them was given power as the scorpions of the earth have power. Scorpions, the power of a scorpion compared to the power of the locust, we might say, is the poison that's in their tail. So there's that reference to poison. Now locusts, Locusts themselves can cause a cloud of darkness in their swarms, but in this case, they're coming out of the darkness of the pit. This isn't necessarily such a foreboding or intimidating image to the modern reader, especially when we are as disconnected from our food supply as we often are, most of the time are. Uh, One small locust uh, could only do so much damage, to one human, but it's their ability to affect famine in particular when they en masse attack the crops of fields. And there are many scriptural allusions, or I should say references to locusts, and of course in our early church history we have an episode that deals with locusts as well. The earliest one comes, of course, from Exodus, where we find that that is one of the plagues that's levied towards Pharaoh and the Egyptians is locusts. Exodus chapter 10, verses uh, 3 through uh, 6, say, And Moses and Aaron came in unto Pharaoh and said unto him, Thus saith the Lord God of the Hebrews, How long wilt thou refuse to humble thyself before me? Let my people go, that they may serve me. Else... If thou refuse to let my people go, behold, tomorrow will I bring the locusts into thy coast, and they shall cover the face of the earth, that one cannot be able to see the earth, and they shall eat the residue of that which is escaped, which remaineth unto you from the hail, and shall eat every tree which groweth for you out of the field. And they shall fill thy houses, and the houses of thy servants, and the houses of all the Egyptians, which neither thy fathers nor thy father's fathers have seen since the day that they were upon the earth unto this day. So that helps us with the destructive imagery of locusts when we read that they would be uh, the the, the chief um, mechanism here uh, for destruction that is coming out of this pit once the stage has been set with with this mist and this smoke. It's locusts, and the locusts, then, their morphology starts to change a little bit as we go through these verses, and they become even more intimidating and foreboding. But when we read that passage in Exodus, we can see that in mass, these small insects can do terrible damage and can affect uh, affect us in in such a, a fundamental way by creating famine. So now these locusts become even more warlike, and we find at the end of verse 3 again that they also become poisonous. And we'll learn more about the changes that they undergo 
uh, in verses 7 through 10. We turn now in verse 4, however, to the target of these locusts. Verse 4 says, And it was commanded them that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, neither any green thing, neither any tree, but only those men which have not the seal of God in their foreheads. So there's a strategy, there's a target. It seems that Satan here is targeting those which have not been sealed in the way that was described in Revelation chapter 7. That's instructive for us and tells us, I think, very clearly that the righteous will be protected. I have two quotes from prophets from this dispensation that speak to that, and they they both have very different points. So I want to read them both about the righteous being protected in the midst of terrible calamity. Uh, Gordon B. Hinckley said the following, Someone has said it was not raining when Noah built the ark, but he built it and the rains came. The Lord has said, if ye are prepared, ye shall not fear. The primary preparation is also set forth in the doctrine and covenants, wherein it says, wherefore stand ye in holy places and be not moved until the day of the Lord come. That's in section 87 verse 8. We can so live that we can call upon the Lord for his protection and guidance. This is a first priority. We cannot expect his help if we are unwilling to keep his commandments. And uh, then, of course, we we have prophets that have followed President Hinckley that have very recently talked about specific things to do in these last days so that we might survive them. And that's uh, President Motson and President Nelson have both had comments to that effect that have had to do with reading the Book of Mormon and studying the Book of Mormon, I should add, and being able to receive revelation. Well, now here's a quote from the prophet Joseph Smith, who makes a very different point when it comes to the protection of the righteous in the last days. He says, quote, I explained concerning the coming of the Son of Man also that it is a false idea that the saints will escape all the judgments whilst the wicked suffer, for all flesh is subject to suffer and the righteous shall hardly escape. Still, many of the saints will escape For the just shall live by faith, yet many of the righteous shall fall a prey to disease, to pestilence, etc., by reason of the weakness of the flesh, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. So there's comfort in that statement by the prophet Joseph Smith, but it's a different brand of comfort. And it comes right at the end of the quote when he says, and yet be saved in the kingdom of God. We might remember, for example, those those people of Ammon who were killed in such a terrible way and then were told that they were still saved in the kingdom of God. So this is, this is still a desirable end. We'll have opportunity to talk about this a little bit later in this chapter, but there's a different kind of destruction. It's a death of hell, we might say, where not only are we physically destroyed, but then we are robbed of the opportunity to be saved in the kingdom of God by this great serpent that we're talking about here. All right. Now, verses 5 through 10 are a kind of a segment in and of themselves, and they begin and end with the same notion. And, and that notion is that <clears throat> Satan's target will not be killed for five months. 
So we're not talking about the righteous that will be spared. We're talking about his target that it talks about in verse 4, those who are not sealed. And, And then in verse 10, this segment ends the same way it began and says that this power was to hurt men for five months. So there is a there. The, it's interesting to note that that's roughly the lifespan of a locust, by the way. But it does also show that God sets the boundaries, which of course we've talked about plenty here. And here's yet one more way to express this concept: uh, that God is in charge, and that He has certain ways of affecting His judgments. That this is in Mormon chapter four, verse five. But behold, the judgments of God will overtake the wicked. And it is by the wicked that the wicked are punished, for it is the wicked that stir up the hearts of the children of men unto bloodshed. Okay, we learn more then in these verses about the state of those who are attacked by these locusts. So, reading verse 5 and 6, And to them it was given that they should not kill them, but that they should be tormented five months. And their torment was as the torment of a scorpion when he striketh a man. There's that poisonous strike. And in those days shall men seek death, and shall not find it, and shall desire to die, and death shall flee from them. This really sounds like a condition where there's such misery. There's just no light. And speaking of Mormon, who I just read from, listen to how he expresses similar conditions in his time. He said, uh, No man, this is Mormon chapter 2, verse 10, No man could keep that which was his own for the thieves and the robbers and the murderers and the magic art and the witchcraft which was in the land. Thus there began to be a mourning and a lamentation in all the land because of these things, and more especially among the people of Nephi. It came to pass that when I Mormons saw their lamentation and their mourning and their sorrow before the Lord, my heart did begin to rejoice within me, knowing the mercies and the long-suffering of the Lord, therefore supposing that he would be merciful unto them, that they would again become a righteous people. But behold this, my joy was vain, for their sorrowing was not unto repentance because of the goodness of God, but it was rather the sorrowing of the damned, because the Lord would not always suffer them to take happiness in sin. And they did not come unto Jesus with broken hearts and contrite spirits, but they did curse God and wish to die. Nevertheless, they would struggle with the sword for their lives. So he's, he's giving us a, an irony right at the end of this, that even though they cursed God and wished to die, they would still struggle with the sword for their lives. So uh, that that passage, really, it's, it's that phrase at the end that I wanted to get to, that they would curse God and wish to die. And here we see in verse six, they shall desire to die and death shall flee from them. It's saying the same thing here. Uh, if you are in a state where your, your only escape or your only release is to die, and if in so doing you don't have the assurance that we talked about earlier of being saved in the kingdom of God, then you are truly in a state of misery. Now, verses 7 uh, through 10 tell us more about this, the morphology, as I mentioned earlier, of these locusts because it changes. And we've talked about the destructive capacity of these locusts collectively, but now let's look at each individual locust and the features that they had and what this might represent. Verse 7, And the shapes of the locusts were like unto horses prepared unto battle, and on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces 
were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women, and their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates as it were breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as the sound of chariots of many horses running to battle. And they had tails like unto scorpions, and they were stings, in the, and there were stings in their tails. So that's where that's when we find out that the thing of interest, when uh, they have tails like scorpions, is the stings. It's the poison, and their power was to hurt men in five months. Well, we we can take a lot from this. Uh, for example, we read about their crowns, but it's as it were crowns. Like like gold, uh, the Greek word behind crowns here in verse seven is Stephanos. It's not it's not the diadem type of crown that comes to a civic ruler. It's it's a crown of victory, as in victory in war, but it's fleeting in this case. It's not the lasting crown that we talked about a few chapters back that comes from that same Greek word. In this case, this is a glory that is given to these locusts that is is worldly in nature and uh, it is fleeting. And so that's why they were as the faces of men. Uh, these, these other features could be interpreted in a number of ways, but I think I would like to, like to sum it up by saying this. Here's a quotation from Elder Bruce R. McConkie, where he says that John here seeks to describe a war fought with weapons and under circumstances entirely foreign to any experience of his own or the people of that day. Joel, subject to the same limitations of descriptive ability, attempted to portray the same scenes, um, and that's in Joel chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. It is not improbable, says Elder McConkie, that these ancient prophets were seeing such things as men wearing or protected by strong armor, as troops of cavalry and companies of tanks and flamethrowers, as airplanes and airborne missiles which explode, fire shells and drop bombs, and even other weapons yet to be devised in an age when warfare is the desire and love of wicked men. And so that's a little bit more about these terrible locusts. Then we learn who their leader is very clearly in verse 11. And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. And in both cases, these two words mean destruction. And this undoubtedly is Satan himself. And we're learning then through this name that his central motive, his modus operandi, his core motive, is to destroy its destruction. No matter what his mechanism is, that is his core motive. Think for a moment of God's core motive, which um, we learn about in, in many and varied ways through the scriptures. Moses chapter 1 verse 39 is one where he tells us what his work and his glory is. And, and truly it is the exact opposite then of the central MO of the angel of this bottomless pit. That brings us to the end of this section in chapter 9. And we're introduced to the sixth angel in chapter 13. Verse 12 tells us that we're also to the end of the other type of segment or sequence that 
we talked about at the beginning, and that is of the woes. And so verse 12 says that one woe is past, and behold, there come two more woes hereafter. So this section from verses 1 through 11 in Revelation chapter 9 describe the first woe. It's these locusts coming out of this pit and all that that implies. Now verse 13 then. And the sixth angel sounded, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, Loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. Well, there's quite a lot to unpack from these two verses, and as we do so, it'll help to set the stage for the remaining verses of this chapter. So, sixth angel, we understand, and we understand what it means when it says that he sounded, and are reminded in verse 14 that he did indeed have a trumpet, so he's part of this seven angel sequence, but then it says that John heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar, which is before God. That detail tells us something quite important. I want to read a paragraph from Richard Draper here. He says the following, As the sixth trumpet sounds, John hears a voice coming from the horns of the altar in heaven. The horns are a symbol of God's power that people obtain through faithful worship, especially through sacrifice. These horns have special significance in two ways. First, on the Day of Atonement, the high priest sprinkled them with the blood of the offering to bring reconciliation between God and Israel. Second, they serve as an asylum for malefactors. One example of this is in 1 Kings, says Brother Draper, where Joab caught hold of the horns of the altar to avoid death at Solomon's hands. And that's, that's symbolic. And, and then uh, Brother Draper continues, Therefore, one might expect the voice from the horns to offer reconciliation and asylum to the world. However, this is not the case. Instead, it commands the sixth angel to release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates, which we'll talk about in a couple moments. That the voice comes from the horns of the altar suggests that in some way the second woe is connected with or a result of the prayers of the saints, for the voice that commands the infliction comes from the very place, the altar, on which their prayers are offered. This is consistent then with something that we encountered in Revelation chapter 8, where we get this this image of, of prayers being offered uh, with incense, and the incense itself is representative of our prayers Uh, rising up into the presence of God from the altar uh, where they're held in a container and then they're sent up. And, And we get the impression from that and we also get the impression from this in verse 13 when we read about the four horns of the golden altar that the prayers of the saints are behind what is happening. They are part of the, the, the trigger that is actuating this destruction that is coming from heaven that we read about that comes from the first um, four angels and then from hell itself, as we're reading here. So that's something to to really consider. And, and we can imagine a future time when the saints in a concerted way might come together and pray 
that 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 the Lord will come again. And once again, like in chapter 8, notice that this is a golden altar which is before God. That's the same scenario, and it is indeed connected with prayer and the way in which prayer works. It's uh, very enlightening. Now, verse 14 says, saying to the sixth angel which had the trumpet, loose the four angels which are bound in the great river Euphrates. So now we have a subset of angels uh, that's besides the seven angels that we're progressing through. And it's not the first time that we've encountered four destroying angels. However, this time, unlike the previous time, when those destroying angels were coming from heaven and their targets were the earth, if we remember correctly, which was in Revelation chapter 7. And, and one destroyed uh, elements in the land and another destroyed elements in the sea and another poisoned the water. Um, that's what those four angels were. But these four angels are coming from the pit. And their target is not just the earth. They're targeting men. And by the way, where it says the river Euphrates, Joseph Smith retranslated that to say bottomless pit so that it's consistent with this concept that these angels are coming from below, whereas the previous angels were coming from above. Now we read in verse 15, the four angels were loosed, which were prepared for an hour and a day and a month and a year for to slay the third part of men. So first we read about this latent period of preparation, and then here's this remnant theology again that we've encountered before, where there's a limit to the amount of men or mankind that will be destroyed in this phase, and a third will be destroyed. And that again is part of that concept of remnant theology, and it's telling us, of course, that God is in control and there are boundaries to the destruction that Satan can create. Um, That's oxymoronic to say destruction that you can create, I guess. Uh, Verse 16, and the number of the army of the horsemen were 200,000, and I heard the number of them. And the Joseph Smith translation says, and I saw the number of them. Now, we're not given the word Armageddon here, but here's some commentary helps us to understand what's happening here. Uh, This is by Bruce R. McConkie, and he says that the terrible destruction that will be unleashed by God's messengers during the last days before the Savior's second coming are 200,000 men. That would be 200 million. And of course, really what we're talking about are innumerable hosts. Uh, That's what's meant by a thousand. It's not as we've discussed earlier, not a strict quantitative figure, but it's it's a descriptor. It's like saying, how old are you? Well, you could either say, I'm 49, or you could say, I'll tell you how old I am. I'm so old that. <laughs> so that's kind of what this number is doing. So these are the men of war that will fight in the Battle of Armageddon that we've just read about in verse 16. We, we do not know whether that number is symbolic or literal, it says here, but uh, that's kind of my take on it. But here's, I'm sorry, I haven't actually been reading Elder McConkie's words. I've, I've um, kind of been coming in and out of words that are from the Institute Manual Commentary. But um, here, here's what Elder McConkie says 
quote, the slain will be a third of the inhabitants of the earth itself, however many billions of people that may turn out to be, unquote. Now, moving on to verse 17, we're going to read about horses, war horses. The locusts had qualities that were like horses, but we're reading here about horses. And thus I saw the horses in the vision, and them that sat on them, so horses and riders, having breastplates of fire and of jacinth and of brimstone. And the heads of the horses were as the heads of lions, and out of their mouths issued fire and smoke and brimstone. Those three weapons, fire, smoke, and brimstone, are listed again in verse 18. But by these three was the third part of... But by these three, so meaning by these three weapons, fire, smoke, and brimstone, was the third part of men killed by the fire and by the smoke and by the brimstone, which issued out of their mouths. Then we read in verse 19, for their power, or these weapons, is in their mouth and in their tails, for their tails were like unto serpents and had heads, and with them and and with them they do hurt. So this is a similar image coming back to this Leviathan that we had occasion to read about earlier. I'm going to read a descriptor of this Leviathan in Job chapter 41, verses 19 through 20. It says that out of his mouth go burning lamps, and sparks of fire leap out. Out of his nostrils goeth smoke, as out of a seething pot or cauldron. So it seems that these weapons uh, effect a death that is not only physical in nature, but it's a terrible death of suffering. There's no happy ending after that death occurs, but it's the death of hell. It inflicts death of the worst and most lasting kind. That seems to be what's, what's being conveyed by this, in addition to the idea that there are perhaps um, weapons of war that that John, as a recorder, didn't exactly have the the the, the words to describe, uh, but I do think that it's the former point that deserves the most emphasis, uh, rather than a desire to translate. The description of these horses with the heads of lions or with locusts to specific um, machines or modes of warfare because there's something more destructive than that, something of a spiritual nature that's happening. And John brings us back to that in verses 20 and 21. And in it, there's a, 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 a very strong implicit warning to the reader. It's a cautionary tale. And especially for us as modern readers, something that we can certainly uh, fall prey to. So let's read those verses. Verse 20, And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands. Now that's interesting. So there's a subset among those who were not righteous, but they actually were spared in this case. And that sounds very similar. I think it's 3 Nephi 9, where he says, Oh, all ye that were spared, because you are more righteous than they. So they are spared, but they still have a very specific problem. And that's described at the end of verse 20. 
that they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. So that's idolatry. So yes, they were spared from these awful, uh, terrible uh, uh, soldiers of Satan, we might say, but they are still caught up in idolatry. And uh, here's, a, here's a very interesting quote by Elder David R. Stone. He talks about uh, how, how we live in a culture that can, um, that, 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 that because of the norms that are established by our culture can, can promote idolatry in ways that we're not even aware of. He says the following, quote, Our culture tends to determine what foods we like, how we dress, what constitutes polite behavior, what sports we should follow, what our taste in music should be, the importance of education, and our attitudes toward honesty. It also influences men as to the importance of recreation or religion, influences women about the priority of career or childbearing, and has a powerful effect on how we approach procreation and moral issues. All too often, we are like puppets on a string as our culture determines what is cool. Seduced by our culture he says, we often hardly recognize our idolatry as our strings are pulled by that which is popular in the Babylonian world. And and I would add to that that uh, not only does our culture promote and condone its own, own forms of idolatry, which we really would do well to think about, but it also tends to define the most pressing problems of the day for us. And so if we take our cues from popular culture today about what problems we should be most concerned about, we might be doing what Elder Maxwell once called straightening the deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, because it's the, there, there are problems that run deeper than those that are often discussed by today's politicians and um, and uh, leaders of, of popular culture. Three problems then, three things to be very concerned about, are listed in verse 21. They, it says, Neither repented they of their murders, well, I guess it's four, of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts. There's lots of scriptural precedent for these four uh, societal problems. I want to focus for a moment on sorceries. Uh, there's a, an interesting quote about sorceries by James E. Faust, where he says, it is not good practice to become intrigued by Satan and his mysteries. No good can come from getting close to evil. Like playing with fire, it is too easy to get burned. The knowledge of sin tempteth to its commission, said Joseph F. Smith in Gospel Doctrine. The only safe course is to keep well distanced from him and any of his wicked activities or nefarious practices. The mischief of devil worship, sorcery, witchcraft, voodooism, casting spells, black magic, and all other forms of demonism should always be avoided. This is something that, a little bit like idolatry, where we, we, we may think that it's a, an ancient notion and something that we don't participate in or have the temptation to participate in, but we do run up against this problem in, in media and in other forms that, uh, again, can be driven by popular culture. 
Now with that said, there is another way of understanding this word sorceries, and that's because the Greek word that is translated into sorceries here is actually pharmakeia, P-H-A-R-M-A-K-A-I-A. Well, that, of course, is the word that pharmacy comes from. And there is such a thing as drugs and elixirs that, um, are, that Satan is able to use to, to dull our senses and, and it basically to hijack us spiritually and ultimately physically. Uh, that then can be an additional implication uh, when we're talking about what sorceries is. We're to the end now of Revelation chapter 9. I mentioned at the very beginning uh, that that I'd say something about the relationship between what we're reading here, the sounding of the fifth and sixth trumpets, the relationship between that and the millennium. And that's how I'll end this, is with some commentary again by Brother Richard Draper, which will, I think, help us to understand something that, that um, is, is often not well understood. I'm going to back up one paragraph in his commentary be going, before going to this concept of the millennium uh, because he, he so beautifully sums up what we've been talking about, and then I'll move into that. He says, John's two images combining to reveal the nature of the latter-day nightmare, giving the reader a feel for the horror that Satan will free against the wicked. The vision creates a picture composed of the most horrible images that can be imagined, not so much to detail what actually will be, but to give the reader, through the use of powerful metaphors, a feeling for the reality behind what will be. But the real horror is neither the horses nor the horsemen. It is those men and women who will live through the evil day and not be humbled, who will continue to cling to their idols of gold, silver, brass, stone, and wood, inanimate objects which neither see nor hear nor feel, will become masters and bind to themselves these demented souls. Thus, these people practice the most blatant form of idolatry, placing material things before God, even in the face of the reality that their idols do them no good. Then he says, this will be accomplished after the opening of the seventh seal before the coming of Christ. And that's a quote from section 77 verse 13. Then Brother Draper says, the second coming does not usher in the millennial era. The woes pronounced by the trumpets do. And, and, and there is the thing that we may not understand. So let me continue. Let me emphasize Christ will not appear in glory as the millennial day dawns. Instead, Satan's inferno-creating horses and sadistic hordes having fiery breastplates, dusky red and sulfurous, will. The millennium, for the purpose of this study, begins at the time the Savior commences his reign on the earth, but to begin his rule, he does not have to have appeared to the world. His reign begins as he collects the keys he has given to the prophets through the ages and directs affairs personally. Daniel gives a hint when this will be. Speaking as though it had already happened, he notes that war was made against the saints and that the wicked had power to prevail Quote, until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was given to the saints of the Most High, and the time came that the saints possessed the kingdom. Unquote. That's Daniel chapter 7. The prophet appears to have had in mind the great future gathering at Adam on Diamond, 
meaning Daniel here was envisioning the thing that we know of as Adam on diameter. At that time, Adam, the Ancient of Days, will appear, will appear as will, will will the Savior. An account will be given to the Lord, and He will then begin to personally orchestrate all events from that point. And uh, section. 16 of the Doctrine and Covenants bears that out. And so, says Brother Draper, very likely the events in Revelation 8 and 9 will take place after this event, meaning after Adam on Diamond. Then he finishes this segment by saying, How long after the millennium begins will it take for the Lord to come? The hour and the day no man knoweth, neither the angels in heaven nor shall they know until he comes. That's out of section 49, verse 7. But it will likely be sometime after the seventh seal is opened. For the present, we of the sixth seal are to watch for the signs the Lord has given and wait in faith. In this way, we prepare ourselves to receive the Savior's mark, because of which we will have no need to fear the millennial day horrors. Okay, so that ends Revelation chapter 9. And uh, he refers then to the, at the very end to the Savior's mark. And he's contrasting the, the protection and safety of that mark to the millennial day horrors then. And that, that Savior's mark is what we read about in Revelation chapter 7. And then in these terrible images in, in uh, sections 8 and 9, um, that's the contrast. And it's that mark then that can keep us safe.